and they saw this diamond-shaped object that was basically hovering in midair. And there was these two Harriers flying around as well. Now, whether or not they were connected with this object is, is again, unknown. But this thing was certainly fly, um, you know, hovering, and then after a couple of minutes, it shot, up, it shot upwards and out of sight. Now, whatever that was, was that super secret technology? Possibly. There's evidence to suggest it was actually American, and it's quite possible it was some strange secret American aerospace platform. Welcome to the latest episode of Extended. Email us now. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. It's time to talk aviation. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to episode 142 of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today our guest is Graham Rendell. He's a full-time author and a commentator on the unidentified aerial phenomenon. He's also a contributor to the Debrief, an American news website dealing with cutting-edge science, tech and defence news. He writes articles on the subject for UAP Media UK and is a frequent guest on various podcasts looking at UAP. Graham has also held a strong interest in aviation and particularly in World War II history and has authored many aviation-related books. And Graham in the 90s was also an editor of an amateur aviation magazine. So with all that said, Graham, welcome to Extended. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really much better now. Um, just getting over a bit of the flu, so I'm, I'm, I'm sounding a bit grumpy and a bit thick, but uh, really excited about talking to you today, Graham, because this is a topic that we've never covered before uh, for no real reason, but is a really interesting topic and has really picked up in both the trade sector, but in the international press and social media areas as well. But before we talk about unidentified aerial phenomenon, um, tell me a little bit about your background in aviation. Sure. Um, early age, four-year-old and obviously a precocious child. And uh, my mother bought me airfix kits to keep me quiet. So I had you know, models of Spitfires and Hurricanes and ME-109s, or BF-109s rather, to get the, the, the correct terminology <laughs> right. Um, and of course, the, the instructions have these little potted histories of you know, the aircraft themselves. So me being a sponge at that age, I'd read all, all the information I could. And that was maybe two or three paragraphs for each aircraft. Yeah. But it was enough to stimulate my interest. And of course, the, the library was nearby. So I pulled out all the books I could. And I was, I was quite an early reader as well. So it just, it just developed from there. And I could read, you know, I read everything I could find in the, in the, in the local library. And then the Newcastle City Library was the next port of call, go through <laughs> all their stock. I would get books on uh, aircraft for my birthday, for Christmas, more models as well. Uh, I got taken to air shows at an early age. But where I lived in Newcastle was uh, at the end of Runway 25. It was like yeah. you could see the approach to it. So I could see aircraft coming in as well. And there was one memorable day actually at school when I was in primary school, out in the playground at lunchtime, and f- four lightnings um, wow. For those of you old enough to remember yeah. the lightnings and the lightning the proper lightnings. Yeah. <laughs> English electric. <laughs> two, pa- two pairs took off from uh, actually on 07. Yep. It came screaming out of the airport and then went vertical. <laughs> and it was just everybody on the playground just, I, there's a memory of everybody just stopping and jaws dropping and people yeah. go, what the hell? You know, yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And even the teachers looking and people asking, you know, the kids asking the teachers, what are they? Uh, and one of them was clued up and he said, lightning. Of course, when I went to the toy shop that weekend to buy models, that was the model I bought as well. So a really early age, Peter. Wow. Now, you've authored a number of um, aviation books as well. I mentioned that you um, you were also involved in aviation magazines. and. Yeah. Uh, 
by by chance last year I came across you, um, particularly in the northeast when we were doing some some research on our coastal command series, um, and I stumbled across a lot of the books, uh, the, the Northumberland aviation stories, uh, yeah. and some of the books there. Tell us a little bit about some of those. So when I, when I was um, sort of working for this like amateur aviation magazine back in the nineties, uh, it was it was effectively a spotters magazine for for want of a better phrase. But it was a kind of thing where I, I thought there was an extra dimension, so to write about things for local interest as well, just to stop it making it was just a magazine of numbers. It had to have some writing in it as well. So that's where my interest in writing articles about local uh, aviation interest came from. And from that, when I left all that behind me some years ago, I retained a, a sort of a hankering to write a proper book or a series of books with the same kind of format and picking subjects with a local flavor that weren't necessarily already in aviation history books uh, because Northumberland obviously was a backwater during World War II albeit you know there were still things went on here we still had bombing raids we still had uh, you know, there was plenty of fighter units still based here and a lot of crashes in the hills but in terms of you know, compared with the southeast of England there, there was no comparison but a lot of the stories up here have never been told so I felt it was important that at some stage I would write books or a book to put some of these things in print. So some of the crashes from the area, you know, the crash sites which I've visited or I'm aware of, I wrote about those. Um, I wrote about some of the lesser known squadrons and units that were based up here and just some of the, the, the action that happened um, with the local squadrons that were based at Acklington and elsewhere. Uh, Acklington's only a couple of miles down the road from where I live in Northumberland, so that, that's you know quite close to my heart. Uh, so there's a few things going on there and it was just a a, like a hodgepodge of different kind of ideas from different times as well. I mean, there's, there's one where there's a story of uh, balloon activities in Newcastle in the late 1700s. So it goes back away, but then it brought everything to the present because a couple of miles where I live is Jurich Bay. And it's, a, it's a long beach, but there's actually a farmer's field that uh, the local um, aero club effectively use uh, for, a, for like a farmer's fly in each year. And they just you know commandeer this field and, and, and everybody flies in from here, there and everywhere. So I wrote about that because that's been going probably about 10 years now and yet hardly anybody in the northeast seems to know about it beyond <laughs> beyond recreational aviation so there's things like that just to put it in print and then people seem to actually quite like this it was a whole load of different stories it wasn't just about military there was some civil stuff in there as well quite a lot of historical some contemporary and it was just a nice mix um so that was one thing i wrote about and you're right i mean there was a coastal command element in some of the stories but i also wrote a book about the History of RAF Morpeth, which was a um, it, it, they trained air gunners there during the Second World War, and that's the one that's never had a never had an, a history you know written about it beyond a couple of articles in the local newspaper, which I seem to remember from about 15, 16 years ago. So you know that was something that was seemed to me was crying out for somebody to look at and go, yeah, I'll write something. And so I came up with about a hundred and fifty page book, uh, all from you know official records and from some um, you know reminiscences and all that kind of things and just personal visits to the place because I'm well aware of you know how you walk around the place now and where you, what you can find and what's still there so yeah that was something else I thought that needs to you know needs to be put down in print so I did that last year well wow. now um another thing and I, and I think we're probably going to come back to this one um Graham and that is that you had a amazing trip in the summer of 1992 to eastern Siberia um as I say I think that's probably a, a, a program in itself but can you just give us a very quick overview of what that was all about yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, at the moment, with everything that's going on um, in Ukraine, Russia's a bit of a bogeyman, so probably shouldn't talk about it too much at the moment. But um, yeah, in, in June and July 1992, I was one of the lucky few uh, people to uh, have a trip around northeastern Siberia. Uh, and this is like beyond Irkutsk and Yakutsk, so you're really out, you know, almost as far as Alaska uh, across the Bering Straits. So it was that top corner, uh, northeast corner of Siberia. And we had a season, had a, a a series of aircraft that we hired. Uh, the first one was an Aleutian 18. It was a, a polar uh, a polar director aircraft, which had been used for iceberg spotting, basically, wow. and for also for helicopters. 
helping to resupply and uh, support operations up on, on the ice floes, uh, the so-called North Pole series of um, ice stations uh, that, that the, the Russians and the Soviets before them used uh, during the Cold War. Um, but that was one of the aircraft we used to get around to get to that part of the world. And then we hired a couple of Antonov 24s to get around some of the even smaller strips where these were just gravel strips that the, the Il-18 couldn't get into. Uh, and some of them were actually diversion fields because a lot, some of the airfields um, flooded during the summer and during the spring and summer. Uh, and there was one actually that did fl- uh, flood, where, you know, and it was one where there was an alternate airfield. So some of the places were a bit kind of dodgy getting in and out of. Um, and then we also had a helicopter ride to see a graveyard of Illusion 14 crates that had been dumped on an, air- on an island in the middle of, the, of a river. So there was all this kind of thing going on. And it was just a really weird place as well. Uh, it, it, you know, Everybody thinks of Siberia. Well, what do they think of it? They think of it being cold, somewhere where they dump political prisoners. But it's actually a lot more than that. But I think that, yeah, that, that's definitely something for maybe another program if you're yeah. up for that. Yeah, um, for, for definitely. There's definite. a lot to talk about. Yeah. yeah. I've got an odd interest in, in Russian and, 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 and Soviet aircraft, predominantly in the different philosophies between East and West. So I'd be really interested to come back and talk about that. But let's move on to talk about unidentified aerial phenomenon um why is there such an interest in this topic now and how did you get involved in it okay well first of all just straight off the bat i'm not a true believer by any any means so we'll just get that out of the way i'm not some kind of tinfoil hat you know tinfoil hat wearing uh, you know complete lunatic um i don't believe the little green men everywhere and all that kind of thing i think there's something to it but I'm not entirely sure what that is, and I'm I'm not going to be sort of held down to any kind of yeah they're aliens or they're you know time travelers all this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm li- it's a mystery which I'm I'm interested in. My interest in in UFOs and, and what they call now UAP, which are it's unidentified aerial phenomena, as you said before, that started when I was about eight or nine year old. I was interested in science fiction. I was reading books by Isaac Asimov and, and others back then, and they had pictures of the spacecraft on the front, um, you know, some quite quite stylized pictures. And my mum thought she was doing me a favour one day, and she bought me a book which she thought was another one in the series. But it turned out to be a book on, on UFOs, and it had a picture of a flying saucer on the front. But it was the same kind of style, so she was easy yeah. you know, forgive her. She was confused about yeah. it. But then when I read this, it was like all the things I've been reading about as fiction, but it was all purporting to be fact. So again, being the curious type and a sponge at that kind of age, then it, it again stimulated my interest and I started reading all I could on it. Um, so yeah, through my teenage years, I was really interested in, and I, I amassed a fair, uh, uh, quite a library on UFO books back then. But it was, unfortunately, that was a time when People used to they almost have this kind of thing where they would write a book and it would be, oh, you know, this person's seen lights in the sky. Oh, therefore, it must be aliens from Zeta Reticuli. It was kind yeah. of these leaps in logic without any foundation. And I thought, you know, if I ever write a book like this, I'd want it to be a bit more kind of um, backed up with some fact. Um, you know, rather just these kind of leaps in logic and these kind of uh, just things that didn't make any sense to me, even at that early age, didn't make much sense to me. And I thought, you could probably do better than this. Um it's much improved now. There's a lot more, you know, people are much more savvy in terms of what you can, what you can't get away with. And people are def- definitely on the ball and trying to prove things much more now than they ever were. Um, but in terms of my interest, yeah, so it, it fell away a bit when I started being much more active in the aviation side in terms of photography and writing uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s. But then um, probably maybe 10, 15 years ago, there's a few things. There was a few things happened. There was a Phoenix Lights, which happened in, in obviously Phoenix in, in Arizona. And there was this huge thing overnight where there was this V-shaped air, uh, craft, or people think it's a craft, with lights along it that sort of just drifted over the city. And thousands of people saw it. And that was a big thing back then. And then, of course, there's all the stories about Area 51. And when that, that has an aerospace dimension to it as well, because uh, people know about you know, all the secret testing that were done there of, of genuine aircraft, not, you know, I'm not talking about sort of potential uh, reversed engineered spacecraft or anything daft like that. So that that was interesting, even just for the um, the aviation element of Area 51, especially with the uh, testing of of MIGs, you know, from yeah. The, uh, yeah. the you know that that kind of side of things, uh, the, the the Red Eagles, uh, as I believe they were called. So there was a lot going on. Um, 
but then again, it, it, it sort of dwindled a bit because it didn't seem to be any kind of, you know, anybody was getting anywhere. And these were kind of the doldrums of the UFO kind of thing because, yes, people had read books, uh, written books, and there was a lot of magazines and people were talking about it. But social media still wasn't much of a thing. And it, uh, it just sort of died a death a bit until, tw- until 2017. December 2017, three videos come out. And I'm sure a lot of the audience will have seen them at some stage. And they are U.S. Navy FLIR videos, uh, forward-looking infrared uh, radar videos, taken of strange objects that even the pilots don't know what they're looking at. So they're not other aircraft. They're not missiles. They're not drones. They simply don't know what they are. And in some cases, they're incredibly fast moving. In one particular case, the U.S. Navy pilot who saw one of these things it moved 60 miles in five seconds. Wow. So, and you know, it, that, is this the Tic Tac incident? That was a Tic Tac yeah. incident. That was the US, that was the, the, the Nimitz in, uh, encounter in November 2004. In, um, so that involved uh, the commander of, the, of one of the, the Hornet squadrons on board the carrier, and he was Commander David Fravor. And him and a, and a wingman, um, uh, she was actually called Alex Dietrich, she's, uh, she's now retired from service. They had both been sent to look at these um, objects that were basically dropping from the skies, effectively. Uh, we've been picked up on radar by, by not just by other ships in the group, but by the guided missile um, cruiser Princeton, uh, which was the lead escort for the carrier for this task force. And they're out sort of off the southwest coast of, of the United States, um, off San Diego, about maybe 100 miles out or so in an exercise area. And of course, the going to generate aircraft that day they're going to send aircraft out on, on on training flights and of course these things are dropping from the skies and, and the people in the radar room are getting worried that you know these things might interfere whatever they are might interfere with the exercise and the safety of the crews and the uh, there's a, um, a particular radar man called kevin day said uh, he asked the or the the captain or, or his superior look we should investigate what these things are we should send a couple of aircraft out and which happened and fravor and his wingman dietrich they went out and they were asked to investigate um, the the nearest of these contacts, which turned out to be this roughly 47-foot-long tic-tac-shaped object basically bouncing around like a ping-pong would, if you, a, pot, a ball would, if you were shaking it in a bottle. So, you know, with no appear, uh, apparent kind of um, motion or um, intent, just bouncing around from point to point above a disturbance in the water. And then, as, as Fravor um, recalls, and he's been on numerous interviews, you'll see him online if you look hard enough, um, yeah. he said that the thing almost recognized they were there as he was dropping down. He left his wingman above to, for cover, and he was dropping down to investigate what this thing was. It was just above the water. And he said it almost turned on itself to point straight at his aircraft, and it came shooting up after him. And then the two of them were in engagement where they were basically going round and round circles, him trying to get on the tail of this thing, and this thing not letting him, to the point of where he eventually cut the corner on it to try and get behind it. And it shot off past him, and that's when it went to his cap point, by because that's what the radar people told him. They said, they'll never believe where it is, sir. It's at your cap point. And that was five seconds later. So it, they worked out that it was doing something like thirty six thousand miles an hour, which was you know, quite yeah, quite yeah. a speed. <laughs> so that was one of the stories that came out, but only recently in, in twenty you know, about the twenty seventeen time. But there was okay. all these, these, these but the, but that wasn't these three videos. One of the videos was of that particular object apparently, but it was taken by another pilot on a different mission the same day there have been another um, two vid- the other two videos were taken off the east coast of america i believe off virginia where there's a big u.s navy uh, exercise area again for the carriers and other pilots on the squadrons on the on the on the on the ships there had also seen these things to the point where at least one of the pilots uh, uh, lieutenant R- uh, ryan graves who has been on various programs as well to talk about this said that at one point they were seeing them practically every day so, you know, that that is quite heavy, really. And these things are straying into exercise areas. So, you know, they're not in it's there's a safety issue straight away. 
never mind a national security kind of issue, because if things are drifting in and out of U.S. Navy sensitive exercise areas, then what the hell are they? So um, and they still don't know or if they know, they're not telling people. But it's still ongoing as well. well and me, of course, yeah, let sorry, me, go on. no, let me come back to the well, if they're not telling, I, I want to explore that with you mm. um, in a little bit. But I want to go back uh, a little bit further in time. I'm ashamed to uh, to know that I only recently found out why the international band are called the Foo Fighters. <laughs> so for those who don't, and there's probably only a handful, so bear with us, um, do you just want to explain to us where this sort of phenomenon started um, uh, and what the Foo Fighters were? And then we can maybe talk about your... Um, book that was that came out last year on the subject yeah so I, I did write a book about the Foo Fighters and not Dave Grohl's band so um during the second world war and towards the latter six months so you're looking from the period of November 1944 to the end of the war in Europe um there were a series of sightings of strange effectively balls of light that were seen by or reported by American night fighter uh, crews who were based in eastern France and eastern Belgium. So we're looking at two particular squadrons. The first, the reports that are that actually led to that, that name being coined were from the 415th Night Fighter Squadron, who were based in Nancy in eastern France during the winter of 44-45. But also the 422nd um, Night Fighter Squadron, who were based in Florence in Belgium, their crews were also seeing these things. And actually, even though when you look at UFO books, up until even the mid-1990s, uh, they don't mention, because the people, researchers, really weren't aware of this, but in northern Italy, um, crews based further south in Italy from the 416th and the 414th Night Fighter Squadrons, again, US uh, Air Force, uh, LME Air Force Squadrons, were also seeing them over the likes of the Po Valley in northern Italy. So these things were described as balls of light, but they weren't just flying around randomly. Often, and most, actually more often than not, were following the night fighters, or in some cases were sitting off their wings and maintaining station with them, and occasionally sitting off the nose of the aircraft and then flying off after a while. They weren't hostile, but the crews were really worried because they thought there was some kind of German secret weapon. And in one particular case, uh, it was happening night after night. Now, according to accepted wisdom, the, the name of uh, the Foo Fighters, that name was actually coined at the end of November 1944, which is true. But, uh, and people think, well, that's when it started. And there's a reason for that, which I won't get into. But actually, the, um, the, the, the phenomenon had, had actually started long before that. And I, I found in the war diaries of some of these squadrons that there were reports going back to September 1944 for the Americans. And actually, if you look at RAF squadron records, some things like this had been seen as early as March 1942, and they're in the squadron records, um, you know, later on as well, and intelligence records from operational research section of Bomber Command. So it's not something that pilots are making up as yeah. a nice story yeah. 40, 50 years later kind of thing, yeah. or people are writing to, you know, to sell a few books. They actually are in the official records, which is quite frankly amazing. But if you go back to the name itself, I mean, the reason why that name was coined, there was a, a, a popular American cartoon strip um, uh, called Smokey Stover, and it was a car, he was a cartoon fireman. And one, he, uh, one of his catchphrases was, where does foo, as in F-E-U, the French word for fire, there's fire. And so that's where foo fighter, as it, or F-O-O, fighter came in. And it was a, right. a radar operator from the four from the um, from the 415, uh, a, a chap called Donald Myers, and he'd actually been witness to one of these balls of light on at least one occasion and possibly more uh, in November 1944. And in a debriefing session after a mission one one night, he'd spoken to the intelligence officer of the 415, uh, a, a Captain Fred Ringwald. And Ringwald at that time was a bit dismissive of the reports because yes, okay, the, the, all you know, a lot of the crews were, were saying about these things, but he didn't really believe them. Um, and then so he asked he asked Meyer about you know what he'd seen again this night, and Meyer had told him. Uh, and then Ringwald must have said something, and Meyer got the co this copy of this comic out of his back pocket and slammed it down on on Ringwald's desk, saying, "It's these." It's, 
and he used a swear word and then went foo fighters yeah. <laughs> there's a bit of alliteration there so you can work out which word which word he used when that's what that's where the name came from but they sanitized it for the press and they took the swear word out but that's where the term comes from but actually the, the phenomenon itself in terms of balls of light or discs disc shaped lights had been seen much earlier and by the RAF, as I mentioned before, a lot earlier. But the the reports, and you find them in the doc, in the squadron uh, records and other places uh, during the war. Some of these sightings were seen you know, over the Bay of Biscay. There was an anti-submarine aircraft, an American anti-submarine aircraft, based in Cornwall yeah. in November 1942. Yeah, it's they a had command. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it was the first anti-submarine squadron. Yeah. Um, and they just arrived in in, um, in 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 Britain as well. The U.S. Navy hadn't actually assumed the uh, control of those duties. This was actually an Air Force aircraft. Uh, it was like a stopgap, and they were flying over the Bay of Biscay. And this 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 light came up behind them, and um, you know they didn't open fire at it, but they took pictures of it. Apparently, according that's it, that's in the um, in in the story behind it. But those pictures have never surfaced. And yet, you know, so there's the stories like this throughout the war where these things creep up on 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 other aircraft. G'day, I'm Dave Homewood of the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's only regular aviation podcast series. The Wings Over New Zealand show covers all sorts of aviation topics, with a New Zealand flavour but an international appeal. From interviews with veterans and aviation personalities, to topics like military aviation, warbirds, air shows, historians, authors, museums, aviation events, and much, much more. We have an extensive archive of episodes that you can go back to, and there are new episodes coming out all the time. Search for the Wings Over New Zealand show. Oh, and by the way, we love Extended. It's a great show. Well done, guys. Graham, why... I, I, I'm by no means an expert on war diaries, uh, and, okay. a, and, and really, you know, my, my research just for the Coastal Command series took me only so far why yeah. why are these topics only recently come into light why, why are people like you only recently unearthing and and, and and investigating these they seem to have been lost yeah there's a there's a there are reasons for it i mean in terms of the foo fighters themselves as a phenomenon the um until about the mid-1990s, the files themselves were very difficult to get a hold of. Unless you're a serious researcher, you know, it wasn't something you could just stumble upon by accident. Obviously, the internet wasn't a thing either. So it was very hard for people, unless you wanted to make a trip down to London if you lived in the UK, and you had to search through all the records, because it was obviously a big manual process. But UFO people who were, you know, they were more interested in contemporary things, uh, the things that were happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. The stuff that happened in World War II, as far as UFO researchers were concerned in the decades afterwards, up until about the late, mid to late 90s, were only a handful of cases. And there's a reason for this, is because in December 1945, in an American forces magazine called American Legion, uh, a former aide to uh, General Hap Arnold, who happened to be the, the commander-in-chief of the, the U.S. Army Air Force during World War II, he'd been sent, uh, this uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel uh, Chamberlain um, had been sent as a, on a fact-finding tour of these European units, uh, basically for logistics, um, you know, for looking about the logistics and morale, not about the Foo Fighters. But he'd been what we call now embedded with the troops. He'd spent a night with a 415th cruise, and they told him about what they what they'd seen. Right. And it, it must have like it must have struck a it must have like you know struck a nerve with him because he wrote an article for this magazine like tw- over twelve months later, but it only had about. Less than, less than 10 cases in it. And he'd taken that from various intelligence reports as well, because these things had been passed up the chain, to, because obviously the squadrons didn't know what they were, and neither did senior command, actually. But there were, there were records of, of all these cases. But he, he cherry-picked a few of them and put them into print, along with a couple of daytime cases which had happened uh, for fighting units operating over Germany towards the last stages of the war, but also a few cases which had happened over, over the Pacific theatre of operations as well. Bomber pilots across there, the, the, the super fortresses, had been followed by balls of fire. That's what they called them there. They had a different name for them. So these kind of dozen reports that appeared in that magazine were the only Foo Fighter reports effectively for about the next sort of half century, really, with a give or take a few stories that came out of the woodwork from pilots who 
mentioned something that's seen odd in the wall in the intervening years. But the, you know, you're looking at a very, very small subset of cases. And in the overall scheme of things, in terms of ufology, that was a minor subject. Yeah. And People just didn't bother because it was it was it was it was nothing really. Um, when you're talking about your know, abductions and discs and flying cigars and all the other kind of stuff, you know, that was yeah, hard the to most compete. Sexy stuff, yeah, so they left this alone. Now, some people did dig into it in the 1990s and a little bit earlier, but they didn't really get very far because it was they say it was incredibly difficult to go through archives. Um, there were, some people did some stellar work in the mid 90s and managed to actually get a hold of the war diaries for the American night fighter squadrons that were eventually available. And they started finding the things that had already been mentioned from that magazine article. They found the actual documents where these things were referenced and they found a few more. Now, I'd always been under the impression, you know, why, why is this gap in World War II? There was always stories of what they called the ghost flyers from the 1920s and 1930s. These were aircraft-shaped things that were seen flying around in all weathers, snowstorms, fog, you know, that kind of thing, where no self-respecting pilot back in those days would fly. And then there was a big gap in World War II, and then you went to the ghost rockets in Scandinavia in 1946, and then Kenneth Arnold in 1947, the beginning of modern-day ufology. But I wondered why there was this big gap in World War II, where there was all these pilots flying around, you know, tens of thousands of airmen in the skies every night and every day. Yeah. Uh, why weren't they seeing things? Why were these things being reported? Um Actually, they were. That was the thing. They were being reported. It's just they haven't been picked up on. So I thought about writing a book at some stage, but like most things, like many people, you know, life gets in the way. And I didn't have the time or the energy or just, or even the money actually to devote to doing the research until a couple of years ago. Um, and I got stuck into the, into the National Archives and pulling out squadron, arch, bomber squadron archives. I basically worked out every squadron every RF squadron that could have operated over Germany during World War II, and also the ones that were based in Italy, that were operating over the Balkans, to find out what their squadron you know, records are like. And they're very patchy. So um, you know, I don't know if you've look, ever looked through the operational re um, record uh, books of any squadrons, but some of them are really good. They're really detailed. You'll get a lot of information for each aircraft on each raid. Some of them have a summary for the raid, so there's not that much detail. And other squadrons have nothing at all. Yeah, it's beyond, really inconsistent, isn't you know, it? It is extremely inconsistent. So the re when I wrote this book about the Foo Fighters, I mean, I use that term as, you know, just to describe any kind of UFO activity throughout the Second World War. I was finding stuff all over the place, but I probably found a couple of hundred new cases from the Balkans in 1944, where there was a couple of RAF squadrons who were operating over the likes of Bulgaria, Romania, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and they were seeing things as well. They were seeing red lights that were flying around their aircraft. And in one particular case, six of them surrounded a liberator from one set. Uh, 178 squadron so you know there were, there were things that were happening like that that can't be written off as german secret weapons because again i don't just have an interest in in, in you know wartime aircraft i've got an interest in, in, the, in the secret weapons as well the missile systems and you know yeah. stuff like that so i was well aware that these things certainly weren't them and therefore what the hell were they and i've never been able to answer that i still can't do that in the book i i, I held my hands up my look I, I don't know what these are and the whole point of the book was to list all these things, and it's pretty comprehensive. You know, there's hundreds of cases in the book, yeah. well beyond what anybody else has managed to do before. Um, but I still, at the end of the day, I say, well, look, I can tell you what these aren't with a fair degree of certainty, but what they are, I'm afraid I can't, I can't do that. So it's not me trying to push any kind of narrative or say, oh, they're definitely aliens, because I'm afraid I just don't know if that's the case. But there was something really really odd going on which can't be put down to german technology and it continued after the war and oh, it did. as we speak today uh, i've just found out you've published your latest book called <laughs> flying saucer fever uh, and this takes the period after the second world war is that just in europe or is that further abroad well this one's worldwide so i, I had the idea of um getting into the uh, American archives, into what were called Project Blue Book, which was the U.S. Air Force's uh, UFO investigation program from 1952 to 1969. They'd actually had two prior ones, one called Project Sign and one called Project Grudge, which had happened in 1948 and 1949. But 
they hadn't been successful for a number of reasons. But then because the UFO reports were still coming in from the military, not just from civilians, they felt that they had to still look at them. And Blue Book was set up. And in its early days, it was quite sensible. They were trying to work out what these things were. But as time went on, it was more dumping ground for, oh, it's just another flying saucer case. And it got to the point where it was quite ludicrous. And it was almost just a kind of, um, you know, a, a public relations exercise, if you like. Uh, and it got canned in 1969 because there was a, a University of Colorado uh, report that said there was no point in continuing it um, because there was nothing to the UFO um, subject. So therefore, it got shut down. But in the early 1950s, and actually even before that, in, between sort of 47 and 49, there'd been a, you know, an uptick in the number of UFO sightings, and especially between 52 and fi- uh, 50 and 52, culminating with two weekends in July 52, where a whole load of things were seen over Washington, D.C., on two successive weekends. And these weren't just lights in the sky, they were picked up on radar as well. And um, airline pilots who were flying into Washington National had been asked to like, can you turn around and have a look and see what this is? And they were seeing them as well. And then of course they were sending jet interceptors up, but as soon as the interceptor ter- um, turned up, these things vanished. And then of course when the these early jets were quite low on fuel, they didn't have much in the way of fuel reserves, they had to go back to base. Yeah. These things reappeared again. So there was two weekends over the nation's capital that really sort of galvanized you know, public kind of well, fears, I suppose, because people thought, well, there might be Soviet in origin as well, because there's always that kind of going on in the back of, of, of people's minds. And they had to drag out some director of intelligence to the U.S. Air Force to have a press conference with all these you know, people um, from, the, from the press corps saying, what's going on? Why can't you tell us what these are? Why are they over the Capitol? This kind of thing. Um, and it, it did stir things up quite a lot. But there were there weren't just cases in America. There were cases in in Europe. There were cases in Africa, South America, and in Russia as well. They're all in the book. But I concentrated on aerial um, encounters, not just people, not people on the ground. These are all pilot and air. These are all pilot and air crew encounters. But they're all ba- they're all based on documents as well. So it's not just you know the people talking. It's actually things I can back up from. Yeah, this is the document I got this information from. So. And a, a question then on some of the uh, some of those stories, and you, you know the credibility, should we say, mm. uh, or, or, of some of those stories. Yeah. Predominantly, we've talked so far about military pilots yeah. seeing seeing and reporting this. Um, is there a fair balance between? that and civilian reports from that period certainly earlier on there was there were more um civilians or there was there was a more of a parity between the civilian and the military side the the civilian uh, there were certainly like airliner pilots who were seeing them so you know you like to see people flying around in dc3s and dc4s and convair early convairs yeah were definitely seeing these and so you got like of eastern airline pilots and united airline pilots and some of the smaller uh, carriers as well in the states but you've got also carriers in Europe, Air France pilots. You have ones who are flying in Africa, in, in, in South America, uh, who are seeing these things. But as time went on, there was a bit of stigma crept into the civilian side of things. So, of course, a lot of stuff went into the newspapers. And I think as time went on, some of the companies got a bit worried that it would sort of, you know, it would have a kind of impact on their public standing. You know, are they, do they want to be associated with yeah. it? So this, 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 you know, got to the point where there were less reports or the pilots themselves thought that they might be open to ridicule, um, which certainly went on, you know, from other colleagues until, of course, they saw them as well, because there was a fair bit of that went on. Um, but also in the military, that thing happened as well, because, you know, pilots were seeing things. And during the war, they got a lot of stick from their squadron mates when, you know, they said, yes, I've seen something yeah. really strange. I don't know what it is. But then they saw them as well. So that happened. But it happened in the post-war world as well. And, and of course, there was this sometimes dismissive attitude by the intelligence officers who were taking the reports down. But also when they got past a higher authority, there was nothing came back. And a lot of the time it was just, oh, you've seen nothing more than a meteor or Venus or, you know, or a flock of birds or something. Yeah. Well, you know, how would you feel if you're a professionally trained pilot with a reputation to uphold and then you've seen something really strange and you've taken the trouble to report it and you've gone through the process of going in depth into what you saw and when you saw it and what it looked like, you know, all this kind of thing. And then for the powers that be to come back and say, you just saw a meteor, you know, yeah. and you'll have seen meteors in flight. You'll have seen Venus. You know what it looks like. They're whole highly trained people. You know, yes, okay, pilots – 
you know, they're like the human and they can be fooled occasionally, but not to the scale where people are being fooled time after time after time by, say, weather balloons. Um, you've got the information about weather balloons. You can tell where they're being lodged because they're in the records. The, 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 the weather information is in the records yeah. about the heights and the wind speeds. So you can even work out where these balloons should have been at certain times. And, ch- and half the time, they're not in the time in the places where the the the, you know, the, the, the powers of be said, oh, yeah, that's what you saw. So a lot of things just don't stack up. Now, what these things that the pilots were saying is anybody's guess. I, I, again, I, I just don't know. And I'm not going to sit here and tell you I know what they are because that's just a mugs game. Yeah. Um, but and I'm sure there are people out there who you know say, yes, inverted commas, I know what's going on. And if anybody tells you that, then run in the other direction because they, <laughs> say, they do not know what they're talking about. You know, It, it just doesn't do anybody any favours. Did you know that the first G-suit for British pilots was essentially a chest-high pair of fishermen's waders which were filled with two gallons of water? The water automatically squeezed the pilot's legs as positive G was applied. Did you also know that the Islamic Republic of Iran Air Force's oldest McDonnell Douglas F-4D Phantom is set to clock up more than 70 years in service, having been delivered in 1968 and now subject to life extension programmes taking it to 2040? If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. I know people very close to me who have seen things that can't be explained. So Mm. I'm also in that I can't explain it. I can't say what it was, but the people I trust with my life have seen things they can't explain. So it's an an interesting dilemma. There's one thing about the book. Um, I managed to get to uh, the, the former director of the latest uh, Pentagon UFO program, uh, a chap called Louis Elizondo. He's a former Army counterintelligence agent. But for between 2010 and 2012, he was the official director of uh, something called ATIP, the Advanced Aerospace um, Threat Identification Program, okay. which was uh, uh, which was something that people are aware of now because it has been made public. And he wrote the forward for the book. Wow. Um, I, I was I was lucky enough to meet him last October in London. He was across um, talking to various people in London, um, and I, I had lunch with him for a couple of hours. So that was quite nice. Um, so I asked him um, a couple of months back, "Would you like to write the forward for this?" So yeah, he, he did that. So I'm I'm really happy with that. And talking about the the credibility of the topic, for mm. want of a better description, yeah, no sure. 2021 appears to be a real watershed um certainly from my limited view of of, of the topic with yeah. the release of the pre- the report called the preliminary uh, assessment from the director of national intelligence uh, eight or nine page report but did this has this really changed the whole landscape of of uap it certainly has. I mean, even leading up to that, the fact that they actually had what we call the UAP task force, um, you know, which led they were the people who came up with that. Bear in mind, it was only a couple of people in a room, but that was a, that was basically the development of what ATIP was, what Lou Elizondo was running. Um, so, you know, they they were exclusively dealing with military cases. They didn't have the authority to talk to civilians. It was a purely military affair. So they would be able to talk to the U.S. Air Force, to be able to talk to the U.S. Navy, to the Army, to Space Force anybody really within the military but of course um, when Lou Elizondo he resigned because he wasn't being able to brief the right people um, and other people took over and then it got to the point where I think it was sort of dumbed down a bit or degraded a bit to where it was just a couple of people but they did actually write this report which the one you're talking about the preliminary uh, assessment in June it was the end of June last year when it came out and it recommended various things which the Department of Defense actually took on board it wasn't something that went, oh, that's lovely. Yeah. And then we'll just file it away in, in the circuit yeah, of bin. Yeah. You know, it was actually, um, you know, there, there was a recommendation from the deputy you know, sort of, de- of, de- um, you know, de- of defense saying, yes, we, we support these recommendations and we're going to fund it. We're going to come up with a proper 
investigative uh, investigative body, which now they have. It's AOI MSG. It's got a it's got a weird name, and I can't even remember what it stands <laughs> for. Uh, well, I can if I thought about it, but it's effectively yeah, yeah. just like a, it's the modern version of ATIP. And again, and again, they're going to pull um, data and uh, on sightings from you know the Air Force, from the Navy, uh, all the things which are happening now. Um, and of course, anybody who's aware of you know what's been happening over the last couple of years will know about these swarms of things that have been flying around U.S. Navy task forces and all the rest of it. And they're still happening this year as well. So you know, it, uh, but of course they're getting the, they'll get the good stuff. And there's congressional oversight here as well. So that's another thing. It's not just the military talking to themselves. It's actually the lawmakers, the people who are in the you know, the overseers of the intelligence world the people who have oversight they're getting to grips with the raw information um you know the stuff that we will never see or if we'll see we'll see 30 years down the line but they're seeing this stuff and they'll be able to make more informed decisions rather than just some somebody coming along saying oh i've seen a ufo you know that's all very well going to your senator or your mp and saying that but that doesn't get you anywhere whereas this does because it's coming from the horse's mouth and it's backed up by radar information or by FLIR videos you know all this kind of stuff that actually says yeah there's something going on here might not know what it is but it's tangible and it's something we can then throw money at and try and work out what the hell it is and even if it is just to rule out russia or china you know um, yeah. i mean but then again you look at what russia are using over ukraine at the moment the all and 10 all and 30 uh, drones where they're radio controlled aircraft aren't they they're nothing more they're held together by gaffer tape a lot of the time when you see them now they're not sophisticated they're not going to do the kind of things that have been reported around the u.s navy so you know if the russians got anything like that probably not because they'd be using them already if they had so none of it really makes sense but yeah it's a definitely a sea change now whether that you know, continues and whether they stick with it and whether they honor these, you know, uh, pledges that they've made is another, another debate. But hopefully, you know, we're in a bit of a watershed here. Yeah. And you and your colleagues have set up UAP Media UK. Tell me what that is, why, why you've done that and, and the sorts of things that you talk about, discuss Mm. and act upon. Well, I, I was basically drafted in last April uh, as a writer for, for them, so because they were aware that I, was, I had an aviation interest and they wanted somebody who had a bit more of a, a background from aviation because that was something they were lacking. Um, and the, the guys had actually set it up a couple of months earlier. Um, and it's basically to engage, to be like a bridge between the press and the people who know stuff so that like the likes of the Lou Elizondo's of this world you know because we have contacts you know we, we know him and therefore we're a bridge between people who may want to have more inf- a more informed debate yeah. because you see the kind of like clickbait stories in the media and I'm not going to mention their names here of, pe- of publications but you all know the kind of thing that happens there's actually one that appeared in the story in a, in a, in a newspaper today as well which is a you know, crazy but you know, to actually make it a more, more legitimate and a more rational debate, you've got to get rid of all this kind of strange, this weird stuff and this strange stuff, the, the bit that people just roll their eyes at, because you're not going to get politicians engaged in that either when they've got this, you know, just stupid stuff that doesn't make any sense and people do just switch off. So, and also we, um, we push people in the direction of journalists and basically say, look, you know, these people are credible. They're rational. You don't need to write a story, which is a kind of a hit piece or a, or a crazy piece. You know, this is something that's actually real. It's tangible. And so we get journalists on side. We're, we're cultivating, um, relations with them as well. So we've got people that we can call on if we need to get a story out there. Yeah. But also again, we're, say so we're a bridge between politicians, uh, and media people and the people from, the people who were actually directly engaged in investigations in an official capacity in the military or in the intelligence world. So we have a lot of contacts. And I guess that's, you know, that's what, that's what we do. We put people in touch with each other, whereas they may not have been able to do that before. And if people want to talk to us, we're happy to do that uh, just to get the, the, you know, the word out there that it's a proper debate. It's the one that people should be having, uh, along with everything else that's going on in the world, of course. But it's not something that people should just sweep under the carpet and it's certainly not something that the mod should just say oh look in the last 50 years there'll be nothing of defense significance because that's patently well, I, I wouldn't use another swear, swear, swear word here <laughs> okay. you know, so. <laughs> no i i understand um that position and i want to come back to a couple of the topics you have you you've got like some 
um, discussion points like a blog, but they're discussion points. And I want to come back, um, okay. maybe not challenge you on something, but no, ask your, no, your, 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 no, ask your, ask your opinion. But I just wanted to pick up that point uh, about the British Ministry of Defence. Um, yeah. We've seen the Americans come out in public and whilst we may or may not be sceptical about are we hearing all the truth, uh, you only have to read that eight or nine page um, article, the assessment, uh, to realise there's some depth to that. Where's the British Ministry of Defence? Where's the British government stand on unidentified aerial phenomena? Well, they don't because there's that mantra, you know, 50, there was a House of Commons at the House of Lords debate that happened last year, uh, shortly after the, the release of the preliminary assessment. And the, the, the minister stood up in the House of Lords and said, you know, 50, last 50 years, nothing of defense significance. And that is, that is the mantra they keep falling back to. And that just stops, you know, stymies any kind of debate, any kind of uh, movement forward. But we know that the Five Eyes Network, the intelligence sharing, you know, apparatus works in terms of UAP as well. Um, that the, the Americans have shared information with their allies. So you're talking about Britain, Canada, uh, Australia and New Zealand. So it's, only it's only right to assume that information like this will have ended up somewhere in the mod now whether they choose to you know actually do anything with it is up to them if they're prepared to stick their head in the sands and say look there's nothing here nothing to see here move on then well they may have a shock coming because we have had incursions over the uk airspace you know within the last 50 years um now whether you know what those are is again is unknown but that Anything that's flying over that can't be explained should be a defense significance because you can't have things flying over your country yeah. that you don't know what they are yeah. because surely that is a national defense matter. And it would be in America because they've certainly sent up jets for things that they don't know what they are. And I'm sure we do the same. And there are stories and, you know, backed up with a certain amount of documentation that things have happened over the last 50 years. And yet the MOD have this kind of, you know, fallback position where we just don't want to talk about it. Nothing's happened. Move along. So it's it's rather strange. And it's effectively a brick wall, Peter. You know, we bat, bang our heads against it when we try to get any information out of the MOD in terms of anything that's happened beforehand. Um, and they're just they're just not having it. Now, they're very good at that. You know, and of course, they invented this, you know, yeah. Britain invented the spy game. So they're great at that kind of thing. But yeah, there's something to it. I mean, you've only got to look at the Calvin incident from from uh, August 1990 of that strange object that those two, well, actually, they were poachers, they weren't hikers. That, there's a little thing for you. Um, they photographed one evening. Um, it was the 4th of August 1990. It was a it was a, an evening in the hills uh, north of Pitlochry. And they saw this diamond-shaped object that was basically hovering in midair. And there was these two Harriers flying around as well. Now, whether or not they were connected with this object is, is again, unknown. But this thing was certainly flat, um, you know, hovering, and then after a couple of minutes, it shot up. It shot upwards and out of sight. Now, whatever that was, was that super secret technology? Possibly. Um, there's evidence to suggest it was actually American, and it's quite possible it was some strange secret American aerospace platform. Yeah. But you know, why were the Ameri were the Brits aware that the Americans were testing it? Um, I've looked through the operational record books for all the Harrier squadrons, and there's no mention of it. But then again, there probably wouldn't be. So <laughs> had a, know, we so. had a guest on a Harrier pilot last week. Damn, I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should have asked him. <laughs> yeah, we'll bear that. We'll bear that one in mind. Um, before I come back to my topic on your website, one other thing that's um, that's crept into my mind to ask you is: mm. um, we've talked about near to land, should we say, in terms of altitude um yeah. what's the debate like for the space sector because that seems to have been you know we've we've heard all the apollo reports of nothing out here yeah. nothing to see yeah. moving on you know we've we've heard all of that but gosh i mean elon musk's up and down every week at the moment yeah. um is what what's the space sector's view on uap well, funny enough, the, the 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 current administrator of NASA, um, he seems to be quite open to the idea of you know things happening. Um, so that's a bit of a change from previous administrations. But again, it, it you just don't know how much information doesn't get through to the public you know side of things. And 
I mean, I think we're all aware that there's a there's probably a, a delay in the in the live reporting. You know, when you get the live feed from NASA, so sometimes when it goes blank, do you wonder what you know? Are they, are they seeing things that you don't know? That's probably a bit more of a stretch. I think I'm sure things have been seen out there, but whether it's just space junk or debris, then who knows? There's a lot of people. If you look on various Facebook groups, there's a lot of people trying to tell you that you know, there's all this flying around and it is actually aliens. But I don't know whether you know. I can't tell you whether that's true or not. A lot of it just seems to be either forgery or fake or or just (laughs) things which are you know quite mundane which are being mistaken for things Um, and i guess that's probably true but have other things happened probably but will we get to know about them maybe not yet um and is there a likelihood that they might stumble over something on mars or europa or something like that quite possibly we we just don't know what's going to happen you know within the next 10 20 years or so but i think and then, of course, there was that object that came um, through the solar system yeah. uh, that the, the suspected was a was an extraterrestrial, as in it came from outside the solar system, not that it was an alien spacecraft necessarily. But yeah. that's the first thing that's come from the great void that's gone through the solar system, and people have actually seen it you know, through telescopes. So, you know, think, you, you never know. Okay. That's the answer to that one. Okay. Well, I'm going to be a bit more light-hearted then. Um, okay. And looking through, I, I I really enjoyed catching up on the the, the UAP site, and we'll put put links to it um, with the show notes. But I, I came across the article that made me think about something I'd never really thought about, and um, and maybe this is human culture, maybe this is the way we think, and how psychologically we've been tuned. But I thought the most fascinating articles, the one that talks about the difficult truth about hostile aliens, because I suppose we've we've sort of come to this to this place where we all think there's going to be a fuzzy, light, two eyed ET type character that's going to come come to this world uh, and then they're going to be really friendly. And that article really prompts us to think a little bit more widely about if there is alien activity, it might not be quite as friendly as we like to think. Yeah. Well, all you've got to do is look back to the conquistadors who, uh, you know, went to Central America um, in back in the was in the 1500s. And, and they, they, you know, they basically wiped out the in, indigenous kind of races, didn't they? So you've got that kind of, you know, thing that might happen here. Uh, when you get a um, effectively a contact with a more advanced technology, and that's even just a benign or you know, a fairly benign kind of thing, rather than coming desperately to wipe people out. Yeah. So I guess you know if you're going to look at it like that, then there's always a possibility. But we we can't necessarily just like hide ourselves away. You know, we, we do have to like you know sort of make uh, exploration because the human you know the human species is you know we are explorers. We want to know what's around you know over the next hill or what's beyond the next moon kind of thing so we we do look outwards rather than inwards so you know maybe at some point in the history might not be in in my lifetime it could be you know 100 years 200 years time we'll we'll probably bump into something else whatever something else is um it might be long dead it could be a long dead culture or it could be a live culture or it could be you know it could be just lichen on 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 a faraway moon um who knows what that's going to be peter you know nobody can tell at this moment wow this is such a fascinating topic i can't but think, Graham, we will need to have you back. I think we'll need to get you back just so we can have, a, I suppose, a, a bit more of an open debate about the, the, the topic. Um, but what I'd like to do is find out where we can find you online. Where can we find some of these books? Um, as I said, one published just today on the topic um, on social okay. media. Yeah, so I'm mostly active on Twitter. So my handle on Twitter is uh, at, um, at Borders750. Um, if you look on Amazon, if you search for my name, Graham Rendell, you'll find the books that I've, um, you know, I've, uh, I've written or published. Um, my website is ReverCountryBooks at dot um, com. So you know that that's the, the, the one there. Uh, that's Reaver as in Border Reavers. And I'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes. That's that's really useful. Uh, Graham, yeah. thank you so much. Fascinating debate. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for the invitation, Peter. I've really enjoyed that. Thank you. Good. Well, that's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts and Peter Dixon, as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including the aviation historian, 
the Aviation Enthusiasts Book Club and Aircrew Book Review. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Gareth, Tim and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. And that's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Graham. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Extended would like to thank its partners, Global Aviation Resource, the Royal Aeronautical Society and XTP Media for their support in helping to present and produce the programme. Our legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website. Please do ask before using anything you hear. The programme is produced with a Creative Commons licence. It's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Knowing how to recognise a store being taught like visually and the basic PPL, it wouldn't bother me. Thanks for listening to Extended. And don't forget, we want you to contact us. Get involved at aviation-extended.co.uk is the email address you need. Extended. This is XTP Media.